0: Welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. Um, Could you please introduce yourself?
1: Sure. My name is Oliver Brock and I'm a professor of robotics at the Technische Universität of Berlin in Germany.
0: Mm -hmm. So I would like to go first. When you will
1: first build a robot and what is
0: the feeling at this time?
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So the first robot I built actually is quite a while ago and it was not a soft robot. Mm -hmm. Uh, was a mobile manipulation system actually two mobile manipulation systems called Romeo and Juliet
2: mm. uh,
1: this was um, oh, Very long ago. I think this was in the middle of the 90s mm-hmm. and uh, Well, you know, we, we really we, we used old Puma robots
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, and we had um, a self-made mobile holonomic mobile base and, you know, we were soldering uh, sonar boards and things like that. So it was it was it took us several months of basically working day and night. And when it finally worked, uh, we were very, very happy,
0: mm. but
1: uh, also very, very tired.
0: Mm, great. So how you come to this journey in soft robotics in general perspective when it's first time and how you think about it when it appeared to become prominent
1: in, in the field? Um, so, so actually that is kind of an extension of this story of the first robot that together with many people in the lab uh, of Stanford University, uh, Professor Osama Khatib's lab, mm-hmm. we built. Um, when I then became an assistant professor at UMass Amherst, <coughs> we also had a mobile manipulation system that we built there, and once that was ready,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, we we were thinking, you know, ready in the sense that we had built the mechanics, we had built some level of control so that we could actually move the whole robot we had some level of perception Um, we we thought well what do we do now right Mm -hmm. so the robot somehow had to leave the room um, and to leave the room that requires to interact with the world and that sort of includes grasping Mm -hmm. when looking at existing hands and um, existing grasping algorithms i found that they don't really work very well in the real world Mm -hmm and this triggered my thinking about finding a better solution at some point then i saw a video i think of uh, the the white lab at
2: yeah.
1: harvard mm-hmm. uh, where some soft mechanism was lifting an egg and i was thinking well you know that might be the answer to many of the problems that mm. we have been encountering and um and that sort of triggered the idea of of building a soft hand, of building a soft end effector mm. for robots. Yeah, yeah. and that, that was the beginning. Um, that's how I got into uh, mm. soft robotics. Mm-hmm. Basically, at that point, I had returned to Germany, um, and I was fortunate enough to be awarded a research prize, the Alexander yeah. von Humboldt Professorship.
2: Yeah. So
1: I actually had a significant amount of money that I could spend on research, mm. And i just decided to buy everything that we needed uh, Mm. to try this out to hire a person to work on this and we just got started not knowing anything and never having had done
2: Mm. uh,
1: manipulation and we just tried things out and and yep that was the beginning that's how we entered as a you know as a lab we entered the field of what now is called soft robotics
0: great so let me ask you how you define soft robotics from your perspective when you started to set up everything, how you imagined in your mind would be soft robotics?
1: So I started really thinking only about a very narrow solution and I thought, uh, well, I guess about a narrow problem to which I thought having a soft hand uh, would be the solution. Mm -hmm. But as we started to work on this and as I guess the whole field of robotics began to realize the potential of soft robotics and began to really Um, work on this in a a very broad way. Mm -hmm. Many, many people have have joined uh, this effort. I realized that really soft robotics is a continuation of classical robotics. It's if you want robotics Mm
2: 2.0. In
1: robotics 1.0, we basically tried to build competent robots, but then Well, for the most part, I should say, because many people had the foresight already early in the early days to try to put lots of cleverness and smartness into good design of of robots. But for the most part, robots were just a way of executing what some kind of planner or controller had come up with. And I think soft robotics marks the broader insight that there's two types of computation that Mm. we can leverage in order to generate Interesting behavior in robots. The one computation is what we classically call computation. That's what we do on a CPU, where we measure something, we compare it to a reference value, and we des- we determine some command
2: mm-hmm.
1: to change the state of the system. And the other side, you know, there's there's morphological computation,
2: mm-hmm.
1: where which I think is fundamentally different from the computation that we execute on a von Neumann architecture. You know, and you might you might say that there are many paradigms of computation, like quantum computation, clearly is different from from the computation that we use nowadays on computers. And in the same sense, I think that morphological computation is fundamentally different and fundamentally uh, has fundamentally different abilities than existing classical computation. Mm. And so, to me, soft robotics is the realization that we can leverage this new computational, well, that's very old, but this additional computational paradigm to build systems that exhibit robust and competent behaviour. Mm-hmm. So, so to me, it's really a natural evolution of robotics as a field rather than a subfield of robotics.
0: Mm-hmm. That's an interesting point, and that's, I would like to ask you about what are misconceptions? If, because you highlighted something about morphological computation. Do you think this is something that it, is really ingrained in, in, in current
1: research of robotics? Yeah, I think that's the, so, so there are many things that that are if you if you buy the story that really um, by by soft robotics entering the field, we have pushed open a door to leverage a brand new to- tool, mm-hmm. then there's a bunch of consequences of this number. Number one is that I think most of us are still thinking in the old terms. Right. So, so to, sh- to, to break free from the constraints of the things that we've been doing for many, many years, I think is a challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we we have very good theoretical foundations of this classical kind of robotics and that's very appealing uh, we, we need to invest time and effort into developing new foundations for this new type of robotics right. uh, and, and so so maybe um, yeah you, you ask about misconceptions I think mm-hmm. uh, um, I don't think it's the right time to speak really about misconception because we're just getting started, right? Mm. We're just uh, exploring with great enthusiasm and great innovative force this new tool that we've discovered. But, um, But I think one of the misconceptions, well, misconception is too strong a word, but if I look at the whole field, I feel like many people are excited about trying new things, about developing new materials, mm. about a- exploring new uh, physical and chemical processes, uh, about exploring the many opportunities that are afforded to us by, by having all these you know, different morphologies, different ways of actuating systems, different materials, and so on. But I think we're forgetting a little bit that if the key is of soft robotics to encode some aspect of the problem into the morphology, then we should not be completely detached from the problem itself, Mm. right? I mean, if we want to design a soft robot that solves a particular problem, it needs to be coupled to the problem. I think right now in soft robotics, we're too explorative in the sense of uh, exploring um, methods. How do I build something? How, you know, can I... Uh, combine materials, how can I modify compliance within a mechanism, and so on and so forth,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but we're, we're, we're not enough studying the connection between our design degrees of freedom and the properties of the problem. So if, if you take this to political level, right, uh,
2: mm.
1: a couple of years ago, this conference started, uh, s- RoboSoft, or yeah. International Conference on Soft Robotics, which, which I think is fantastic, right? I mean, I think it's fantastic that this field... Gets, gets a community and an outlet. Yeah. But there also is a risk that we separate ourselves from the traditional robotics community
2: uh-huh. and,
1: and become sort of an isolated, uh, disconnected component when really soft robotics is about the connection, is about really connecting to the problem, connecting to all the other components of a system and negotiating, for example, between a soft robot and a planner. How is the responsibility distributed between those two things? How do we best leverage morphological computation and traditional computation? And we cannot do that if we are disconnected from the rest of robotics. So so maybe that is not a misconception, but there's too much excitement because there are so many exciting things Mm -hmm. that maybe we get too distracted by the new and shiny things rather than doing the traditional hard robotics work.
0: Yeah, that's a very interesting point. I would like to ask here, what do you think that could be possible solutions? Because I think this is a very serious point about detaching from robotic itself so you have one perspective I, I don't know w- what, what do you think about it do you think it's what could be implication behind having something very nations of robotics and isolating ourselves from others development well,
1: yeah I mean I think that, that if this happens and I don't think it has happened yet
2: yeah.
1: um, but if it does happen that the soft robotics community and let's call, let's call it the traditional robotics community actually diverge then I think it creates the opportunity for people to bridge these. So, so then you, know, you, you can actually do interesting things by being one of the few that connects soft robotics and traditional robotics.
2: Mm.
1: But, but my feeling is that, that this is not going to happen, that everybody realizes that w- really we're, we're trying to solve the same problems
2: mm-hmm. and
1: that each of us has something useful to contribute to that solution. But, uh, but that doesn't mean that we should just ignore this and not be cognizant of it, right? I think we should be aware that we need to collaborate with people um, on, on, on building, really, systems that behave mm. with respect to an application, rather than just yeah. demonstrating uh, you know, some really, really cool trick um, that has potential, but that potential isn't really played out. Oh, that's
0: uh, that's was interesting. So I would like to. Sc- in this regard, because there's two categories now, we may be focusing on designing uh, um, smart material like uh, AEB technology, electroactive polymers, or in other regard, we have to work in passive material and coming up with the tricks that you mentioned. I don't know how you read the situation that we have two different uh, categories. We have shortage, of course, in smart material designing, but I don't know how you read uh, these directions happening in software robotics.
1: I'd like to contrast this with the the opposing view, where you start with the problem. And this is how I got into it, right? I, I actually don't really consider myself a soft roboticist. Mm-hmm. I consider myself a roboticist. And it's clear that soft has a role in robotics and that soft is a is a powerful tool, just like deep learning, mm-hmm. is a powerful tool that has been given to us by smart people uh, and, and that, that we now should leverage. So, so I really wanted to solve a problem and by solving that problem, I discovered that using this tool of compliance is actually really, really helpful. Mm-hmm. And it triggered many other things. It triggered us developing new planning algorithms that leverage the, the power of, of compliance in end effectors. It triggered us to develop new sensors. It triggered us to develop new, new perception algorithms. And so, so to me, when you want to solve a problem you, and, and you, you, you import concepts of soft robotics into your solution. You notice how it triggers changes in all these other components, and therefore you sort of integrate what softness does into all the other components, and and that if so, so I think if we're problem driven, then we don't really run the risk of um, of being fragmented.
0: Mm-hmm. So I would like to ask in the intelligence part of soft robotics, how mm-hmm. do you see soft robotics so far intelligent? Because you had the argument about perception in general. in Some talks you. Had argument about how we see perception in robotics. So mm-hmm. um, I don't know how you see s- intelligence and soft robotics.
1: Yeah, intelligence is obviously a very difficult subject, right? Uh, if you there, there's many many disciplines yeah. that that use the word intelligence. Um, we're not the only ones. Robotics, AI, psychology, neuroscience, uh, educational science, philosophy. Right? So, so many different disciplines have a perspective on intelligence. And within these disciplines, there's no shared agreement on what intelligence really is. And you know, also among these disciplines, there's no shared agreement. So, so we really have to attest that we don't know what intelligence is. So this is a difficult question to answer.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: on the other hand, you could argue, well, you know, we all would agree that humans are intelligent. So there's an existence proof that the type of behavior that we label intelligent exists and there are systems that can produce it. So, so this is actually what I think is, is motivating my research. I would like to understand what is this phenomenon that we observe in humans and mm-hmm. also in many other species that they can generate behavior of a robustness, versatility and complexity that seems to be puzzling to us in particular when you compare it to the complexity of the behavior that our machines produce. Mm -hmm. So, so that is kind of what, what, what motivates me. Now, why do I think robotics or soft robotics has something to say about that? Well, I think that this intelligence that we observe in nature has clearly evolved um, in the context of an environment and a body interacting with that environment.
2: Mm.
1: Many of the regularities, that you need to exploit in this mapping, let's say from input to output, from your perception to your actions, right? This is a very high dimensional space. In humans, we probably have around 300 million receptors that continuously sample information from the world. And we have, depending on how you count, 600 to 800 muscles with which we can affect the world. So we have a 300 million dimensional input vector. Mm-hmm. and let's say a 600 dimensional output vector. That is a very, very complex function. It's a very high dimensional space. And this can only work if there's some structure in this mapping. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This structure depends on the body. And, and so I think that we need to use the body and understand the body and understand how the body relates to, um, to the other things of computation, of, of machine learning and so on,
2: mm-hmm.
1: in order to be able to understand how behavior is generated.
0: That's a, another point about the behavior generated, how we can predict the behavior, since uh, software robotics sometimes we don't have reproducible data um, at different experiment. So you have interesting about say about a reasonable effectiveness of data. And that's mm-hmm. why I don't know how there's a uh, contrast between coming up with new algorithms and the data we have, since this data is not consistent each time. There's, you think there's challenges at this point?
1: Absolutely, I mean uh, yes, so so the, you, you, you're you quoting this paper, I forgot exactly by whom it was, about the unreasonable effectiveness of data, uh, which is itself a reference to another paper by a Nobel Prize laureate and physicist, uh, I think his name is Wigner, who wrote a paper about the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics in the natural sciences, sort of marveling at mathematics being um, so great at capturing the the physics around us right i mean Mm -hmm. something as complicated as e equals mc squared which you you know to 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 express that just in a few letters is kind of amazing Uh, then later there was another philosopher who wrote a paper the not so unreasonable or the not so surprising effectiveness of math arguing that well math has developed in parallel with physics To describe physics so it's not surprising that it's effective at expressing it because that's what it was developed for Mm -hmm. and then there was another response to this saying well before we were trying to explain things with math we can now stop doing that because data is really effective at capturing these relationships in the world that are maybe way too complicated to be captured in a simple formula Mm -hmm. and so we should look at data yeah now um this is basically a little bit of, of what the deep learning people would argue, right? That we, if we have access to a great amount of data, yeah. then we should leverage it and we can we can try to generate behavior based on that data. Now, I think in many robotics problems, uh, deep learning and data has not been as effective as, let's say, vision, And so the question is, how can we fill that void? Um, and and again, I think the body gives us an answer. But I think your question also was, was alluding to um, the replicab- replicability exactly. of experiments. Of the
0: data we get, yeah.
1: It's not the same. Exactly. So, uh, so it's true that I think in robotics in general, uh, we, we are trying desperately to come up with benchmarks and ways to compare the performance of one algorithm with another, or of one system with another, or of the same system in lab A and in lab B. And and those things end up being very complicated, and I've spent some time thinking about how we can solve that. And finally, finally, I, I, I sort of gave up, mm-hmm. you know, um, be- because you know m- m- maybe smarter people need to think about it, but I I found it too difficult to to really think of a test that, that is 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 good, right? Yeah. But there is still hope, I think, because. The whole scientific method and and the um, the traditions that we've developed, for example, um, making experiments rep- re- replicatable. Mm. Uh, that that is, I think, a really really great goal. We have the replicability crisis in science in general, where people are saying that you know uh, less than 50 percent of the things that are being published are actually you know replicatable, and that is a, a little bit tragedy and 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 a problem because we don't know what to trust mm. and in robotics we have that problem even more right we, we we basically have this proof by video um somebody writes a paper and then the proof that it worked is a, is a video but we really have no way of assessing how robust that system is mm-hmm. people don't tell you when does it break down what are the limits uh, what are the you know the weaknesses and so I think that as a young field, and I think robotics still is a young field, we are rightfully struggling with this and the fact that we're paying attention to it and that we're trying to be good scientists, mm. I think is, is, is the only thing that we can do at this point. As we understand better um, what is unique about robotics and how it is different from, say, physics, I think we will develop methods of, of coming up with experimental protocols that allow us to replicate the work that we do. And sharing code and sharing data, uh, which is an increasing trend in our field, I think are very good steps into that direction.
0: And that's uh, also, I think, very important for our uh, just field and uh, researchers, because I think that's something, I don't know who has the authority to make it forward in the direction that open to be open to each other and sharing the data. But um, I don't know if there is actual a regulation or something in the field that can, because we have like obligation to share the actual data set that we have. But do you think that something is happening or just still challenging
1: from your perspective? Both. I I think something is happening and it's still challenging. And if we look to other fields, so in other fields, uh, they they, they have done something which I found really, really interesting. Basically, you submit to a journal Mm
2: -hmm. the
1: hypothesis and the experiment that you want to run and then this gets reviewed right so so you you have a hypothesis about i don't know how people learn and you say this is my experiment and i expect this outcome and if this happens then that's the conclusion if this happens this is the conclusion this is what gets reviewed and you basically get the decision that your paper is accepted before you've written the paper because after you've gotten your experiment and the hypothesis approved yeah. you now get to conduct the research and no no matter what the outcome is if it's a success or failure you can publish it which means that you can also publish negative results
2: mm. which what? is
1: super super interesting yeah. um, and and that you know uh, you, you, you there's less incentive to um, to try to design your experiment well you cannot actually right you cannot change your experiment so that you get better better results. Hmm. You have described the experiment and now you're stuck executing it that way and the world will find out about what happens.
2: That's so what I think that's
1: a, that's a very scientific way of, of yeah. approaching it. And it could be something that maybe in robotics is interesting.
0: So what is the name of this journal? Uh?
1: Uh, I actually don't know.
0: Okay, but that's a fascinating way of viewing papers. Uh, yeah, so I would like to ask you, what is the challenges that you have in your research? Uh, just. What are the challenges that you'd like to solve?
1: Well, that's a good question. I mean, at the highest level, again, I I think the the biggest challenge that I would like to solve is intelligence. Mm. And I don't think that I can expect to solve that in my lifetime. So I need to break that down into much smaller problems. Mm. Um, And in a way, I guess you could use the analogy from evolution. Where evolution has first developed things that can move around a little bit to find better food, digest that food, and so on, right? And mm-hmm. then the capabilities or the the complexity of the behavior has increased over the millions of years. And so I think that I would like to define um, an increasing you know, a set of, ex- of behaviors of increasing complexity that build on top of each other. And I would like to understand how you can solve each of these individual behaviors, relying on what you have learned about the simpler behavior that came before that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So that's kind of high level, um, but, but I think there are many concrete low level things. Uh, I, I think that robot perception, uh, or perception for action if you want, is still an unsolved problem. I think that manipulation, in uh, particular in-hand manipulation and arbitrary manipulation uh, that is sort of continuously integrated into real world tasks is something that is still unsolved. Um, many aspects of learning are still unsolved. Uh, you know, In particular, how do you actually incorporate the knowledge that you have into your learning system so that you can be more data efficient and you can generalize better and you achieve better robustness?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, so, you know, at every level of these components, there are still technical questions that are in of interest. And if you want to build an integrated system, you, I think you need to innovate in all of these.
0: Mm-hmm. So let me ask about, do you think that singularity is something real or just exaggerated uh, by the field?
1: Is robotics or something? Do you think it's something you mean singularity? The, si- the singularity. Yeah. So, so the idea that as computers grow increasingly more powerful yeah uh, they they reach the computational ability in terms of let's say floating point operations of the human brain Mm. and as they greatly exceed that capability that they also exceed the behavioral ability of the of the of the humans is that yeah that's what you mean by similarity yes well i have to say that i don't believe in it Okay. um even if we have computers that can do many many more flops mm-hmm. uh, than the human brain it is obvious that you can spend these flops on something useful or, or something useless right you so so if you have all of these flops recompute the square root of two again and again and again and again. You, can, you have spent a lot of flops but nobody would say that you've created an intelligent system.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: just having computational ability doesn't buy you anything.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You need to know what it is that you should compute. And I think that's what the human system is, is really great at. It has built into ourselves millions of years of, of, of evolutionarily encoded knowledge of what to ignore and what to consider and how to process things right mm-hmm. already in your retina there are many feature de- feature detectors in your skin there are edge detectors so so you know that's just two examples of how the information i spoke about the um, 300 million receptors yeah it's it's not that this 300 million dimensional vector arrives at the brain it gets processed on the way the information that's relevant gets extracted and much information gets thrown away, right? It's not just being compressed, where compression has the goal of reproducing the, the, the original input. It is actually being, I would say, transferred into a task-relevant representation, where the task-irrelevant information is thrown away. And mm-hmm. so, encoded in our nervous system are many priors, that evolution has discovered that work really well.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so, so that is the, the knowledge that we need to extract. And that will tell us what we have to compute. And if we know what we have to compute, then having more computation time is, or more, more computational abilities will give us an advantage. But so, so basically what I'm saying is, I don't think that the number of flops is an interesting metric. The metric is, do we know what it is that we need to compute?
2: Mm. And if
1: we have both, if we know what we want to compute, and we have more flops, then we're in an interesting position. But I don't see that happening um, as as is predicted by Kurzweil in the singularity. And I think, you know, 2030 or 2050, I don't think it's going to happen like that.
2: That's
0: fascinating also about the way of perception of human. And we don't have to have this amount of image, like millions of images, to recognize something. But I don't know what you think that could be the s- possibilities we can have to reflect the same way the human perceive uh, objects like uh, finding food. As How how you see it? In, uh,
1: you yeah, I don't think that we need to necessarily copy exactly the human. Mm-hmm. So the way I believe this, uh, you know, the, the human's work is that there are out there some principles, and these principles allow us when we understand them to turn these very high dimensional problems into low dimensional problems mm-hmm. so, so the, a thought experiment could be if we could rewind time back to the the primordial ooze where you know the first living cell comes uh, into into being and we replay the whole evolution probably humans wouldn't look exactly the way that they are right now mm-hmm. right They might be different they probably would not be called humans. Something would be different. But there would still be a reflection of some principle that is irrespective of which path of evolution you play out.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So so I think we need to discover these principles that are independent of the particular instantiation of, of intelligence that we see in humans or in animals. And and then we can transfer these in a more suitable and more more, yeah, more adapted way, to the machines that we built. because if we just try to copy what humans are doing, we're going to also have to copy, uh, the the, cons- the the the, sort of the idiosyncrasies that resulted from us having a carbon-based, uh, substrate,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, from us you know being being forced to climb on trees millions of years ago and so on and so forth, right? The fact that our hand used to be a foot, uh, right? Th- that, that is still reflected in the design of our hand. If we had the opportunity to design the hand from scratch, maybe it would, could come up with something that is better than the hand.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I don't think we should limit ourselves to copying the human. I think we should try to understand the principles and then apply these principles in the best way possible to, to the synthetic systems that we can build.
0: Mm-hmm. So let me ask you about there's certain um, people think that we have to invest maybe in the brain more than morphology of the soft robots. Some researchers have developed microfluid like soft brain to the soft robotics. Just a simple one, but because they think that maybe more laws is not uh, surviving anymore, we have to invest something like microfluid for as a brain for soft robotics. Do you think this direction is really worthwhile in, in the moment? We have to invest time in coming up with soft microcontroller instead of transistor using in soft robotics as a project?
1: I, I think right now we're so early in the game that trying to explore what is possible makes perfect sense
2: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, you know there, there, there will be uh, there will be situations where y- your application really requires you to be completely soft mm-hmm. And then you are happy that you don't have to put some integrated circuit board into your robot. And there are other applications where you have a big metal box and you attach something soft to it. Mm. And so inside that metal box you can have all the hard things that you want, it doesn't matter. So so I think, I think it's really too early. Mm-hmm. And maybe maybe it's always too early. Maybe in science we always need to explore multiple paths,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and and we always need to explore different concepts and different approaches. So I think, I think it's right now it's so early. It's great to push all boundaries as long as we don't forget that we need to ultimately link all of these things to an application.
0: Mm-hmm, yeah. So let me go to simulations of robotics, mm-hmm. like same to real. Do you think this is mm-hmm. good? possible to, to replicate the same in simulations of robotics. How do you see the results done so far in simulations of robotics? Or seem to real if, t- if it's
1: happening? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that obviously is a super hot topic right now. Yeah. Um, and, and again, I, I would say the same thing. I think it's great that people try different things. Um, I think it's great that people believe that we can Train everything in simulation and it will transfer to the real world. We should try that. I'm I'm hundred percent in favor Now if you ask me whether I would want to spend my time on this, I would probably be a little bit more hesitant. Why I? Think that the simulations that we have Will never really match the real world and they don't have to right if as long as they actually Contain those aspects of the real world that are relevant to the problem that you want to solve. Yeah, so you, you can imagine a Simulator that is perfectly suited for solving a particular task But in order to know what that simulator actually needs to simulate So which phenomena of the real world are necessary to simulate to solve the problem? You have to solve the problem 1st mm-hmm Right? And so, once you've proved the problem, I don't need simulation anymore. So I think the, the answer to really solving interesting problems in robotics is to understand the real world. And once you understand the real world, you know, to, to encode that in simulation in such a way that it really doesn't get distracted is difficult, very, very difficult. So in a way, you could view this as, as, a, as the race between the people that want to study the problem in the real world. and The people that want to study the simulation and we'll see who makes more progress in what particular area Mm
2: -hmm.
1: having said that i still think that there is great value in simulation Mm -hmm. now simulation can have uh, the value of uh, just allowing you to debug your code that's a very trivial value Um, but simulation you can also use it for example to pre-train a system Right? You, you, can, you can give your learning agent a simulator to try out different options so that it can select from those the ones that are, that, that is most likely to succeed.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: then you only need an approximation. You, you only need to rule out things rather than um, creating the right solution, right? That's an interesting distinction. Can you rule out options in simulation? I think that's much easier than trying to train the right solution. So that's another option that you have. Uh, another option would be that you that you try to extract some structure that is contained in your simulation and also relevant to the real world. So you could use it as kind of a curriculum learning. You first learn this in this simulator, then you learn that in this other simulator, and then finally you graduate to the real world, which is different from domain randomization. I would like to add.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: so I think sim to real is a is a difficult topic. Yeah. Um, I, I, like I said, I think it's great that people are trying that. My feeling is that especially when you look at, for example, manipulation, um, the the physical complexity of, of, of manipulation, of transitioning contact states is relatively high because you have a hybrid system. A discrete change can really affect the, the dynamics of your whole system. To simulate that accurately I think is very difficult. So
0: but yeah, yeah. We'll see? Yeah, yeah. I uh, just to, uh, to highlight in, in RoboCant, it's open AI. I don't know if you what you with what they have done so far. If you can just
1: oh now this is getting uh, tricky. <coughs> yeah, open AI, uh, you know they, they, they first showed the uh, the cube rotating inside the hand. Yeah they just they just released the rubik's cube being solved inside the hand now obviously these this is great research these are very impressive results i would like to see that actually generalize so so the the generalization that they did as far as i could tell was that they had like you know uh, different disturbances you know they had like some rubber bands around Mm. the fingers they had uh, a soft toy interact with Rubik's cube as a disturbance. But, but that is sort of showing the robustness to disturbance, which I believe to a large disca- large extent is a consequence of the physical system in any case. Exactly. No matter whether you train it by, uh, yeah. by deep learning or not. What I would like to see is all these thousands, if not millions of GPU hours leading to something that actually transfers between tasks. Um, and so, so I kind of, I'm cautiously skeptical
2: mm.
1: of, of the actual relevance um, to robotics of these demonstrations. Mm. Th- this, this could be a long discussion, right? Where, yeah. where we really look at the details of the paper, look at uh, the, the information that's available mm. in the papers and in the videos. And, and I, you know, a question that I have is, is, you know, we, we talked about science and, mm. and, for example, having replicatable experiments. Mm-hmm. Yes. I, I wonder, is this actually replicatable by anybody in the world right now?
2: Uh-huh.
1: And, and, and so, you know, is this... Wh- what can we do? What can we learn from this? How can the field extract something from it that we can build on? It seems to me that that really depends on having many, many engineers maintain the the shadow hand having access to incredible amounts of computation yeah. and so to me it's difficult to judge to what degree this is a super super sophisticated really impressive demo
2: mm-hmm. or
1: actually real fundamental progress in manipulation
2: uh-huh. I don't
1: know
0: great okay so maybe we can go now if you could tell us more about your upcoming work in soft robotics—something like you're excited to just to share with us. Upcoming projects you would like mm-hmm. to share.
1: Um, so, I mean, at the technical level, uh, we, we we have been building uh, the third version of our hand, mm-hmm. the RPO hand three, which combines, obviously, softness. Right, it's still a silicon-based, pneumatically driven. Uh, hand mm-hmm. to, to, to be able to leverage compliance, but it also includes 16 actuated degrees of freedom
2: mm-hmm.
1: and these degrees of freedom serve obviously to achieve motion uh, in the hand But but ultimately we, we, we wanted to have many more degrees of freedom our previous hand had uh, seven degrees of freedom um, We wanted to have more degrees of freedom because really compliance is fantastic. Yeah. but not always Sometimes compliance is bad, and sometimes compliance is good in one direction, but bad in the other. So so you need, um, I guess, actuation within a soft mechanism in order to be able to vary the compliance uh, to, to adjust to the particular task that you have at hand. And so this hand combines three things. It combines the idea of softness, it combines the idea of still having a high number of degrees of freedom to be able to adapt that softness, And the third aspect is that actually we discovered that that humans use a number of, well actually there's one particular strategy that they use excessively in our very simple tabletop experiments uh, over 80% of the time. Mm -hmm. And so we we sort of optimized the hand to be able to play back these human-like strategies uh, so that we could leverage, I guess, the The evolution of 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 human of the human hand uh, as a grasping uh, end effector and so these are the three things that are accumulated combined in this hand softness many degrees of freedom and the ability to play back human strategies Mm -hmm. one thing um -hmm. we also discovered that these hands still need feedback right they still need sensing
2: Mm -hmm. and
1: sensing is something that's notoriously difficult Uh, in in soft robotics because soft things don't, uh, are not amenable to the inclusion of existing sensing technology like hardware or potentiometers and things like that. I mean, sorry, encoders, I meant. Um, So so we need to develop some new sensing technologies and we've experimented with two things. One was uh, liquid metal strain gauges. Mm where we've developed um, methods to try to, basically we equip our soft actuators with a few of these strain sensors, and we use computation to to compute out of this information, different sensor information. So, so we have strain sensors that measure uh, something that's integrated over long distance, right? So imagine, mm-hmm. A, a strain sensor that stretches over the entire length of your finger and so it measures a phenomenon that integrates over your entire finger. Now, we have several of these and from these several different integrated sensors, we can actually simulate virtual sensors. For example, a strain gauge at the, at the base of the finger or we can compute where contact occurs on the finger um, or we can Compute the force, the contact force. So, so we have basically one generic sensor that senses something very non specific, these strain gauges. And from that non specific information, using computation, we can back out specific information as if we had a particular type of sensor.
2: Mm-hmm. So we have
1: a non specific sensor from which, using computation, we can back out information f- as if there were specific sensors.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So that's that's pretty interesting, I think.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, and then another development that we have is that we developed um, something that is that we that, well, that that is basically sensing on based on acoustics. Uh-huh. So we put a microphone into the finger.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: most recently we've also put a little loudspeaker into the finger. And so the finger is basically making actively sounds that get modulated by the shape and the strains in the finger. And so again, we can play a sound inside the finger, record the sound inside the finger, and from that infer things like, uh, you know, where is something touching the finger? Um, what material are you are you touching? If you're actively, uh, you know, tapping on material, you can actually determine what material it is that you're tapping. And so again, we have, Um, turned the entire finger into a sensor without placing a single physical sensor inside the soft material, right? So we just use the hollow chamber on the inside to place a microphone and a and a speaker and we've turned the whole finger or the whole soft actuator into a resonating body which senses its own state encodes that in sound and again using computation we can decode that modified sound to infer something about the state of the actuator.
0: Oh, that's fascinating. So I don't know what, what you, this is really fascinating way just to, to exclude physical sensors. But what could be the application behind this developed? But they're using this
1: concept. What could be possibly applications? Well, so, so we are implanting these sensors into our hands. Uh-huh. And so now we can measure um, where contact occurs between the hand, whether that contact is slipping. Um, what material you're contacting, um, you know, and, and this, this serves as a basis for the closed loop feedback control
2: mm-hmm.
1: during manipulation. And I think this will be particularly important for in-hand manipulation, where you want to devise strategies that adjust to uh, unexpected changes in the, in, the, in the motion of the object that you're manipulating that you somehow need to sense so that you can react. So basically, these will be the sensor suite that we put into our hands uh, so that we can perform complex and dexterous manipulation. Is
0: there any limitation, Do you have any limitations?
1: Well, I, I guess the limitations at this point, I would say are the things that we have not tried yet.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So for example, if you want to actuate a finger, you need to, bro- you know, on our fingers, they're pneumatically actuated, so you blow air into it. That makes a lot of noise inside the finger.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So we have not tried yet whether, during that inflation state, you can actually use the sensor in the same way. We've we've tested it with with very loud noise, uh, noise at the level of uh, of of there being you know f- for humans it's painful, like uh, I think uh, almost a hundred decibel,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and that does not affect the sensing. So so the, basically the computation can learn to. Um, to remove the outside disturbing noise and just to focus on the sound that is being modified. So there is hope that we should also be able to extract out the inflation sound but we haven't done that yet. I mean these are things that are basically happening right now.
2: Mm -hmm. Uh, But
1: we've tried many things. We've tried whether there's crosstalk between several of these acoustic sensors um, embedded into uh, Several fingers at the same hand, and th- there is not. I mean, I mean, there is crosstalk, but that doesn't cause any any problem in terms of the accuracy of the sensor. Um, we've actually tested the the um, resolution of the sensor. So, if you place a contact on your finger uh, at different places, how far away can these two contacts be for you to discern them?
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: I think the the our solution uh, or our measurements resulted in a resolution of about three millimeters, which I think is pretty good compared to other um, explicit taxels that you might put onto your hand. So I think right now this has worked really well. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm sure there will be limitations, um, but we have not really found something very fundamental that uh, has distracted. I mean, as a matter of fact, we've discovered interesting things. We've automated our experiments, and so we've placed uh, one of these acoustic sensing fingers on, on a robot.
2: Mm-hmm. And so we
1: learned that using the acoustic signal that is made by the robot, you can actually infer the configuration that the robot is in. Because the motors in different configuration have a different sound and bring different parts of the robot to resonate with different frequencies. So I think we've discovered that sound is really a very powerful, um, a powerful signal that we can interpret in many many ways so i think there's still a lot of potential and i'm sure as we progress with this we will discover yeah. uh, lots of uh, limitations but right now i don't think that has been really something huge that has been a setback for us
2: yeah, yeah so um, i would like
0: to ask you about your thoughts about soft robotics as interdisciplinary. if you're using there's the challenges because we speak different languages some material science are working and electrical and computer science. Do you think this is really still challenging to understand each other's, And, and maybe it something, uh, that's why misconception, but do you think there is a real challenge in this direction of speaking different languages?
1: I think that is always a problem. Even with people within the same field, communication is the biggest challenge. And whenever people work together, communication is the number one challenge.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Of course, that, that gets more challenging the further away the disciplines are. And I, my, my lab also does research in computational biology, where we work with structural biologists and molecular biologists, and mm-hmm. there's a pretty big gap. And it took several years, I think, to really fully understand the language. But I think in soft robotics, we're kind of lucky because we're starting from very new things. Uh, The robotics were doing new things, the, the, I don't know, chemical and polymer scientists, they are doing things that they probably wouldn't have done otherwise if it were not for the application in soft robotics. And so I think that we're coming together at a very early age, very early stage of the development of this field Mm -hmm. where where these communication gaps are small and where the enthusiasm so the motivation to overcome them is very very high so i'm i'm not worried about this in the context of soft soft robotics i think this you know and, and if you look at the papers being published i think it's beautiful how people work together and, and new ideas come together right now i don't think that that's really one of the pressing problems for mm-hmm. soft robotics
2: yeah
0: so, let me ask you whether you see any promising project have been done so, f- so far by other groups in Soft Robotics? Something fascinating you or resonate with you?
1: Oh, I mean, there are so many people are doing so much fantastic work. It's, uh, I mean, I, I, there's, there's really nothing specific that comes to mind, but I think it's very inspiring. I was at the, the second um, RoboSoft. In, in Seoul, in Korea yeah. uh, this year. And I think it was really amazing, the creativity and, and the spirit, the excitement. It really feels like a startup company, right? It, it, so so I, I, I don't think I can pinpoint mm-hmm. uh, something specific, but I think the field as a whole is producing an amazing amount of really, really interesting work.
0: Mm-hmm. Great. So, let me ask you, what do you think the biggest challenges that's got face of robotics in general, in, in the long run? What do you think that's really the, the challenge, mm. the
1: biggest challenges to, you think? hmm It's a very young field.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: we're still trying to figure out exactly what robotics is. Right now, it is a melting pot of physics. You know, we have dynamics, we have kinematics. It's of control theory of, you know, we use method, we use methods for machine learning. So, so it's really a melting pot of all kinds of mechanical engineering, double E, all of these things you need to know a little bit about to be a roboticist. Mm-hmm. And I think the field is just at the verge of really discovering sort of the scientific basis of, of itself. If I now go to my shelf and take a introduction to robotics book, and flip through it, I will find a, cap- a chapter on kinematics, I will find a chapter on dynamics, I will find a chapter on control,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so on, right? But th- these are all things that really are necessary for robotics, but that are kind of independent of robotics also. Mm. And so I think we're we're about to develop content that actually is robotics content, something that no other discipline has. And, and that, I think, is the biggest challenge to, to take a moment to stop and to think about what is it that really constitutes the field of robotics. It's so exciting Mm -hmm. uh, to, to, to take the latest deep learning approach and to incorporate it into your robot. It's so exciting to take the latest results from image classification and to build a robotic system using that. It's so exciting to look at what Boston Dynamics is doing
2: yeah. and you know,
1: possibly buying one of their robots and, and really boosting the capabilities of your system just by importing these uh, achievements um, from different people. And this is a lot of what's happening in, in our field, but I think we are, we're at the verge of actually becoming a serious science, the science of behavior. And mm. as we become the science of behavior, I think we, yeah, we, we will discover sort of the, uh, the, the canonical knowledge that you have to teach people to become roboticists. And that to me is, I guess, a really challenging problem. So let
0: me ask you how we can ensure that the soft robotics is beneficial to human as all. Well? Is there something like ethical reg- or regulation of the as- And first, of, most of all, how we can make sure it's really beneficial to humans in general?
1: I think this is a very good question and it applies to nearly all research. Mm-hmm. Most things can be used for good and for bad. Some things are clearly just usable for bad and I think we should try to steer away from those. But even the things that you can use to do a lot of good can be used for bad things.
2: Mm.
1: I think the only thing that we only hope that we have is to really be responsible and to be uh, open-minded to this responsibility, to incorporate this into our daily lives, into the way that we conduct research, in the way that we teach students, in the way that we write research projects. Research proposals that we conduct research projects, we need to make ethics, and 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 a, and a very extensive discussion of how the things we develop can affect the future, part of our endeavor.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I, I really don't see any specific rule that you could impart, or any you know regulation that can prevent this. I really think that the only thing we can do is. Act as responsible researchers.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. So let me go to the industry part. In in 2000, I think or 1999, you have a, a company, and you said that you were about to bankrupt bank So let me ask: What are the criteria to have a successful company? If you would like just your student come and you want to start something, in soft robotics startup. What are the main mm-hmm. criteria to have a successful company or startup in the beginning?
1: You mean a successful company in robotics or a successful company in general?
0: In, in robotics, and, and especially soft robotics, and that's, I think, very important maybe to highlight how we can make sure soft robotics can find its niche among the, the industry and marketing.
1: I think right now the the whole startup market and the venture capital market yeah. for robotics is, to me, behaving in a way that I really find it difficult to see patterns. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of money being put into robotics, which is great Mm -hmm. and and it reflects a degree of excitement and a degree of anticipation of new developments. But we also see many companies, in particular consumer robotic companies, going out of business. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And I, I you know, I don't really see the killer app at the moment.
2: Uh-huh.
1: So, so you know, if you talk about startup, it kind of depends on what you're thinking about, right? I mean, there will always be small uh, to medium enterprises who build something for a very particular application, for a particular industry that gets a market and you can maybe get a company of 20, 30 people. Um, but but things of the scale like iRobot yes right I think that is very difficult right now. It's very interesting iRobot seems to have found the one economic niche where robotics outside the factory floor can really have an impact. actually that's not true. There's also you know medical companies uh, and, and medical robots like the da Vinci robot that yeah. really have significant markets. but again, th- these are basically, I don't know, if this is really robotics or if it's an automaton it's you know it's teleoperated so so the human is in the loop i guess maybe the, the boundary should be autonomy right mm-hmm. if you have teleoperated robots of course we've de- we've developed amazing machines but to have robots operate autonomously i even autonomous driving has been promised for many many years and seems to be as far away as 10 years ago Mm-hmm. That's probably not exactly true, but it, it doesn't seem to be happening tomorrow. Let me say it like that. Uh, so so I think autonomy is something that we really don't understand yet. And so if you want to start a company that really tackles something that is outside of the traditional realm of robotics, which is outside of factory automation, I think it's super difficult. And when we in 2015 won the Amazon Picking Challenge. yeah. Um, the big logistics company of the world contacted us and they wanted to know how far away is this from being deployable in logistics centers around the world. And we thought about it. We actually considered starting a company and we eventually decided against it uh, because I think that even though we can build systems that do a demonstration to take these systems to the industrial scale to to make them so robust that they can work day in day out in these you know environments i I think we're still far away from that so i think if somebody came to me right now with a robotic startup i would say you know if it's something very specific if it's something where you really have a technological advantage and you know that there is a need for exactly the thing you know do it Mm. But if you are claiming that you're going to make a consumer robot or that you're going to make you know, a, a human assistant, I really don't think that the technology is there yet.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. So let me ask about you, how you see the integration between artificial intelligence and soft robotics, At integration? Should we come up with some new terminology that define how we should uh, integrate both fields to um, each other?
1: What, what do you think exactly is artificial intelligence?
0: Maybe perception, uh, vision, this kind of terminologies, it's proud mm-hmm. term, but uh, what do you think? What is, could be the best uh, definition uh, with perception
1: or vision? I would like to interpret artificial intelligence as just exactly what those words mean. There is intelligence. And when we see that in nature, we know what it is, right? We, we, we observe humans, we watch many other species do amazing things and we say that is intelligent behavior.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then artificial to me means you take that and you try to replicate that and its properties on synthetic artificial systems. Now that is different from what AI has sort of considered as its example. Uh, Projects and, and people have realized that many many decades ago that once you know how to play chess
2: yeah. you haven't
1: solved AI
2: uh-huh.
1: Right, and we still fall into this gap, right? It doesn't matter what board game you pick if you solve that board game. I would claim that you haven't solved AI So so to me AI right now comes, you know, people are using it in a very Intuitive sense yeah. and and sometimes it refers really to machine learning sometimes yeah. it refers to deep learning Sometimes it refers to specific you know, systems, like what was the, uh, the Jeopardy game? Um, yep. What was the name of the robot? Uh, anyway, so, so it's these, it's not a robot, right? It was oh, a computer okay. program. Yeah. Um, but so, so to me, I would like to interpret AI really as what these two words mean. Hmm. The, the, the artificial replication of the natural and biological phenomenon of intelligence. And then when you, when you put it that way, uh, it, it, it is, I guess, easy to answer, right? Soft robotics, in my view, is necessary for us in order to be able to build AI because it offers this additional computational paradigm, this morphological computation that we can bring to bear on solving very complex computational problems. In biology, it was necessary to have a body.
2: Mm, yeah.
1: right? the, body the body is a precondition for biological systems of having intelligence. So I'm not sure if a synthetic system also needs a body to be intelligent. Mm, As a matter of fact, I can imagine that you can build intelligent systems that don't have a body. But I think in order for us to arrive at a very good and constructive understanding of what intelligence is, I think using a body to research this problem is Mm. extremely helpful and will accelerate our progress. So soft robotics to me is a really important tool that we need in order to understand what intelligence is, so that we can then build artificial intelligence.
2: Uh-huh.
0: Great. So, do you think just in this regard, the uh, general public is really aware of soft robotics? There is enough uh, strides to illustrate that soft robotics is, is prominent in, the, in, in current research. Do you think there is perception about that?
1: It's difficult for me to answer because I obviously consume news in a very different way from, from the average non-roboticist.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, my feeling is that that soft robotics is pretty prominent as far as robotics is just because it's super exciting, right? Uh-huh. I and mean, if, you, if you look at Rob Wood's uh, fully soft octopus, yeah. I mean, that is just aesthetically so pleasing and so, such a cool story. Mm-hmm. that I think many, many news outlets have picked that up. At the same time, if you think about how uh, how maybe Boston Dynamics is getting news coverage, they're also getting a lot of news coverage. So I, I think it's okay. I think I think the people are maybe not aware of the word soft robotics, but they have all probably seen some kind of soft robot, you know, or, or, or be it, you know, soft octopus robot. Mm-hmm. So I, I think I think there there is awareness in the general population of robots not just being hard anymore.
0: Uh huh. Okay, that's great. Right. So now I would like to ask you more specific questions. Do you think ego is important for a researcher?
1: Ego can have many different implications. Mm-hmm. I think okay. ego. To the degree that it gives you confidence that you should try your ideas, even though other people without giving you good reason tell you that it won't work, I think is a good thing. So when ego translates to persistence, I think it's good. When ego translates into arrogance, where you you don't listen to other people, mm-hmm. even though they do make good arguments, then obviously it's detrimental. Mm. So yeah, I, I think ego is is a, is a very big concept, uh, and it can lead to good and to bad things.
0: Mm-hmm. So you're you're against vendors' definition. How the person de- defining?
1: I'm against whose definition?
0: I uh, mean, I mean, it depends how the person interprets ego and the interrese- yeah,
1: research. I mean, what 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 would you be your definition of ego?
0: Yeah, because uh, like Richard Feynman, uh, he has was an ego that. He was just seeing the resources best, uh, so there's two two ways to interpret it. So I'm, I'm asking you, how, with your ego, just uh, how you see it from your perspective.
1: Yeah, I think I, I don't know what uh, what what Richard Feynman said about ego. Um, I I've, I I haven't seen that, but uh, but I I think. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah. Uh, let, let's. If ego, if ego means that you believe in yourself to do the things that you want to do, I think that's good. If ego means that you put yourself over other people mm-hmm. and over their arguments, then I think it's bad.
0: Mhm. Yeah, that's true. So, have you ever designed a robot on a regular basis and ended up to be in your home? You have any robots at your home?
1: No. No, I think my home is very unautomated.
0: Okay, so um, as a PhD supervisor, what are the main qualities you're looking for the student? Is this about the skills or the trait? How you you see the student join your
1: lab? As a as a person, you yes. know, I, I, I who has to work with that person, I think a really important component is that you can get along. With that person, right? So, so I think there's in research since the the relationship between an advisor and advisee mm-hmm. is kind of a you know a very close relationship. I think it's important that you get along.
2: Mm. And that
1: doesn't mean that you have to be of the same opinion on everything, but it means that you have some respect towards each other, and that that you, you're you're capable of exchanging arguments, um, sort of on an on an on an even mm-hmm. even level. Mm-hmm. In terms of research, which obviously is what we're here to do, um, you know, my my experience is that there are, every PhD student that I've had so far has been very different from all the others. Mm -hmm. They all have their unique set of skills and their unique set of problems. Mm
2: -hmm. Because
1: everybody, you know, nobody is born a perfect researcher, you know, and, and everybody has to learn it. Um, and so, so it's very difficult to, for me to anticipate all the possible combinations of these personal traits that lead to being a good researcher. But, but I think maybe if there are some things that, uh, that are in common to many of the people that I've seen great, do great work, I think it's maybe curiosity,
2: uh-huh.
1: right? They, they really have to be driven by the desire to understand the world around them. I think they have to have passion because as we all know in research there are frustrating moments and in order to pull through those you need a big battery and passion is I think the biggest battery that that one can have and I think they need some some degree of resolve of the ability to set themselves goals and to see them through Mm -hmm. and and to um, not get distracted by little adversities and, and not be deterred by small problems, but to really have the focus and the drive to move towards the goals.
0: Mm-hmm. Great. So, um, as a respected researcher, your if there's an advice was given to you uh, as a researcher was really uh, life changing for you, way to things, and you would like to share with other people here listening to us.
1: So, so you're saying what advice was given to me?
0: Yeah, that could be really interesting to be, sh- to be shared with other, uh,
1: mm. our listeners. I think, um, okay. I mean, obviously I, I, so, so I think there are two things
2: mm-hmm.
1: and one is very, very general. And the other one is very specific. And I don't think that neither of them are very deep, but, but uh, maybe that speaks to who I am as a person, uh, why they impacted me. Um, but one was the realization that I should not wait for other people to invite me to do something.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I should move things forward the way I think they should be moved forward.
2: Uh-huh.
1: So, so I don't know if that is a piece of advice or just an experience that I had uh, as 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 a as a PhD student. That you know, I was to some degree. Waiting for somebody from the outside to tell me your research is now good enough to be published as a paper
2: mm-hmm.
1: And I, I realized, you know, I shouldn't do that. I'm the one who knows that research best It should be me who makes that determination And that I think was a, was an important lesson and I don't think that I was ever explicitly told this but I think it's kind of a, an environment and a sense of encouragement that my own advisor Osama Katib. Uh, Placed Uh in the environment around me that that made me that come to that realization so that uh, That I think is very important and another thing that I thought was was uh, in the beginning. I thought was actually kind of annoying um, That I realize now is really really important. That is the way that you present your ideas Uh You know the first way the first time I wrote a paper I Just wanted to write down everything that I thought was important about this problem and my advisor said, well, you know, you've got to make this picture nicer. You've got to present this more clearly. And, and that was annoying because it's like, look, you're making me take something out that I think is key. But, but I realized that, that really what matters is not just what's written there. It's also what the person that is reading the paper is able to extract from it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so a big part of doing science is to think about how do you present the ideas to other to other researchers so that they are easy to understand, and that the full the potential of the idea develops, so that it's enticing, and that other people adopt it and 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 want to want to learn about this.
2: Mm-hmm. So so
1: I think marketing, if you want if you want to call it like that, is actually very very important in research, and I didn't realize that in the beginning. Mm,
0: that's a great uh, advice and experience to be shared. Yeah, so. Let me ask uh, you if you have final words at the end of the podcast, soft robotics community. Final words you would like to share
1: for soft robotics community. Well, first of all, let me thank you, thank you. for for doing this interview and and for for doing this podcast, which I think is a great service uh, to our community. Um, I hope that you know, in the in the line of great speakers that you've already talked to, I I could contribute something, and I like I said, I really appreciate. You, including me. Uh, But yeah, so the first word goes to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Yeah, and then I don't know. Words to the community. I think that we're all in a very, very exciting moment of robotics, and I think that soft robotics is not something that is 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 something that's that's going to go over. I think soft robotics is here to stay. I think we. We should just keep doing what we're doing. I think I think soft robotics is a super exciting field. with mm-hmm. very, very smart people in it, doing great research. We should just keep doing mm-hmm. leveraging our creativity to 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 help the entire robotics community. And maybe that's the, the the final word. Don't split off. Right? Mm-hmm. Stay together with the roboticists. Think of the application that you want to build a system for, mm-hmm. rather than just exploring um, you know, crazy new ideas.
0: Mm-hmm. Thanks so much. for over. And above I truly leave, Ras, I would like to thank you for your time. Thanks so much.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Thank-